I invite you to take your Bible with me this morning and open to the book of Philippians. For those of you that are just joining us, we are in a study of the book of Philippians. And we have arrived again today at verse 27 of chapter 1 down to verse 30. And we'll read those verses together in just a moment. Give you a moment to find your place there. Philippians chapter 1, uh, verse 27. Follow along with me, if you will. Only let, your con- uh, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition but to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. Let's pray together. Father, in these next few minutes, I pray that you will guide us and lead us as we come back to a passage that we considered last week, and we come back for a second week to get the second part of this message about citizenship in heaven. And Lord, I pray that you'll speak to our hearts. I pray that you'll give me the grace that I need. I pray that you'll give those that are listening the grace that they need. Lord, we pray for the many that are watching still online. We're so grateful that they have tuned in today and they're watching by live stream. And we pray your blessings upon each of them. We look forward to the day they can join us again. And we know, we know Lord, that day's coming. We don't know exactly when all this is going to go away. And Some of these things change, but Lord, we're just thankful that we're able to gather together as your people. Bless us now as we consider your word. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Last week, we talked about citizens of heaven and some of the things that are worthy of our citizenship, ways in which we should conduct ourselves that are worthy of our citizenship. And today, we're going to continue that study here in Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. There was a man who was living in Arlington Heights, Illinois, and he was on his way to work one day, and he stopped at a light, and he noticed something interesting on the SUV that was in front of him. This is one of those SUVs that had the tire that was attached to the back, and then it had a tire cover over it. He said as he sat there, he could tell uh, the deep loyalty of that person who was driving that car. Uh, That spare tire that was mounted on the back of that vehicle had the words, Texas Longhorns emblazoned across it. And there was a steer head icon that was also emblazoned on that tire cover. And then down on the trailer hitch, there was a steel head icon and the word Texas right above it. And then there was the license plate that was on the frame of the license. And it was bordered with the words Longhorns on top and on bottom, the University of Texas. But the problem was it didn't quite add up in his mind as he's looking at this because that, uh, that frame for that plate, that, te- that license plate, was attached to an Illinois, a land of Lincoln, Illinois license plate. And there was on that license plate a picture of old Abe and everything that went along with those uh, Illinois license plates. And he automatically knew that This person had obviously moved from Texas to Illinois. Why anybody would want to do that, I'm not sure. But moved from Texas to Illinois, and that his loyalty was still in Texas. (laughs) We have some in the room that feel that same way. 
His loyalty was still in, in Texas. You know, I think that's pretty normal behavior if you move from one city to another. You know, you hold on to the things that you're familiar with and that you've grown up loving. But when we come to Christ, we become a part of another kingdom. And little by little, our loyalties have got to be transferred from this world where we have our citizenship to the world to come where is our citizenship. In other words, each of us has a heavenly citizenship you want to look over at Philippians chapter 3 just for a moment, and he words it that exact way. Verse 20. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. He says, for our citizenship is what? It's in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. And living out our lives day by day, we are steadily transforming and transferring our loyalties from our citizenship here to our citizenship with God in heaven. And that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about in Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. As a matter of fact, he will use a word here in a moment, I'll point out to you, that refers to citizenship. He uses Roman citizenship, and he says, listen, you understand what it means to be a good Roman citizen. I want to tell you what it means to be a good citizen of heaven. And then he lists four specific things that he says makes us good citizens of heaven. Before we look at those things specifically, let me just recap for a moment what goes first in those first 26 verses. The Apostle Paul opens those verses with a salutation and a greeting to the people at Philippi. And then he thanks them for their partnership with him. They had been supporting him and praying for him and helping him to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he was writing back to say, thank you for your partnership in the gospel. And then he talked about something that he was experiencing at that very moment because Paul was under Roman arrest. He was chained to a Roman guard 24-7. And he says, instead of that hindering and hampering the spread of the gospel, instead that has worked out to the furtherance of the gospel. And then Paul talks about his own life. He says, I don't know whether I'm going to live or die. I'm in prison here. I'm, I'm under arrest, I should say. And I don't know if I'm going to live or die, but I know whether I live or die, I, I belong to the Lord and God's going to use me. If I die, I'm going to go to be with the Lord. If I live, I'm going to serve the Lord either way. But then when he finishes talking about some of those things related to himself, when he comes to verse 27, he moves the focus away from himself and he moves it toward the people in the city of Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony. It had been made a Roman colony nearly 100 years before Paul wrote this letter. And everybody who lived in that city was proud of their Roman citizenship. And so the Apostle Paul in verse 27 picks up on that idea, and he says, only let your conduct be worthy of the, of the gospel. We learned in the last message that that word conduct is the only time it's found, the only time this Greek word is found is at this particular place. And it refers to conduct worthy of citizenship, the conduct of citizens. Now, he was playing on the understanding of the Philippians as it related to Roman citizenship. And now you are citizens of heaven, and you're supposed to have a conduct that is worthy of the citizenship that you hold with God in heaven. As a matter of fact, in one translation, in Philippians 1.27, it says it this way. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. 
And so in this world, we want to live up to our citizenship as American citizens. But more importantly, we want to live up to the citizenship that is ours because we are children of God, that heavenly citizenship. And then Paul began talking about some of those things that are worthy of our citizenship. First of all, he said worthy citizenship means standing fast. Notice it again, verse 27. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you, and hear the words, stand fast. They're the words of a soldier who takes up his position and refuses to surrender it. And in the world in which we live, we have to stand fast for our Lord and stand fast for the doctrines of the Word of God and stand fast for the truth of Scripture and stand fast for the morality that the Bible declares and stand fast for these matters. And we cannot give up an inch. And worthy citizenship means standing fast. But secondly, we learned that worthy citizenship means staying united. He goes on here. I hear of your affairs that you stand fast, and then notice, in one spirit with one mind. He's talking about unity. He says worthy citizenship not only stands fast, but a worthy citizenship stays united. I think you'll agree that there are always forces at work trying to bring disunity amongst the citizens of the United States of America, right? Outside forces that are always at work trying to bring disunity amongst the citizens of the United States. So it is with citizens of heaven. Satan is always at work trying to bring disunity into our midst. And yet we have to stand with one another. And we have to encourage one another. And we have to stay united and not let Satan divide us. Now today we learn two new things about what is worthy citizenship. If our citizenship is heaven and we're supposed to be transferring our loyalties from this world to the world that is to come, then what is this worthy citizenship that God expects from us? Well, thirdly, we learn that worthy citizenship means striving together. You notice again, verse 27, he says that I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit and one mind That's staying united, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Striving together for the faith of the gospel. You see those two words, striving together? It's the translation of a single Greek word, sunathleo. You can hear it, can't you? Soon means with. Athleo means compete. It's the word that gives us athletics or athletes. They are to compete with. Now understand, here he's not talking about competing against. He's talking about competing together as a team. We are to strive together as a team. We're to pull together. We're to cooperate with one another. We can always get more done together than if we have some superstars that are doing everything. It's always better if everybody participates than if just a few participate and do all of the work. He says you're to strive together. There's a picture of the image that I want you to get here. It's found in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But I think the best account is in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Jesus was in Capernaum, and he was in a house, and he was teaching and preaching in that house to those that were gathered. There were so many people inside the house that you couldn't get in the house. 
And the people outside had gathered around just trying to get a little hearing of what Jesus was saying on the inside of the house so that you couldn't even get close to that house. Well, there were four men who had a friend who was a paralytic. There was no way that paralytic would ever be able to get before Jesus if he didn't have the help of his four friends. And his four friends took him and they put him on some kind of a cot. And then each of them carried one corner of that cot. And they brought that man from his bed of affliction to that house where Jesus was speaking. When they got there, they recognized that they couldn't get inside the house. And so those four men working together, can you imagine? This is a man who cannot help you. He cannot help bear his own weight. These four men carrying those four corners of that cot carry it to the rooftop of that house, and they begin breaking up the rooftop, that mud clay kind of a rooftop, began breaking it up. Now look, he's not just trying to make a little hole. They got to make a hole large enough to be able to get that cot down into the very presence of Jesus. And finally they get the hole wide enough and then they begin to let that man down right into the very presence of Jesus. And we all know what happens. Jesus heals that man. But that's a picture of what striving together means. If There had only been three men and one had been absent. It would have been a whole lot more difficult. Had there only been two men and two had been absent, it would have been even more difficult. Had there only been one man, it would have been virtually impossible. The Apostle Paul says worthy citizenship is when we come together in unity and we all take part and we all do our part and we all serve God in the way that God gives us to serve him. And we don't have anybody just sitting observing, sitting in the stands and watching everyone else, but we have everybody taking up a corner of the cot and saying, I'm going to strive together with you. I'm going to work together with you. The Apostle Paul talks about this as well in 1 Corinthians 3. They were divided in the Corinthian church. They had not stood together. And they were divided in the Corinthian church. Now, they were divided over a lot of things, but one of the things they were divided over was people, preachers. Some said, I'm of Paul. Another says, I'm of Apollos. And Paul says, aren't you carnal? You're not following Paul. You're not following Apollos. You're following Jesus Christ. But listen to what he says. Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Do you hear what he says? Some people people sow, some people water, some people harvest, but everybody is involved in the process. Everybody is striving together for the same goal and for the same purpose. He goes on, he says, so then neither he who plants is anything nor he who waters, but God gives the increase. In other words, God's not looking for a bunch of superstars to do his work. God's looking for a bunch of ordinary people just like you and me who are willing to stand fast and stay united and strive together as a team, cooperating with one another to accomplish the task that God has given to us. And everybody, everybody, do you hear this preacher? Everybody has their place. It's like the body. The Bible likens uh, the, the, the church to a body. When a part of your body doesn't function properly, the rest of your body is hindered as a result. I can testify to that this morning. 
When a part of your body is, is hindered, it affects the rest of your body. But when every part of your body is doing what it's supposed to do, you're healthy and you're strong and you can live your life to the fullest. And God is saying to these Philippians who understood what it meant to be a Roman citizen, but who needed to understand what it meant to be a citizen of heaven, that not only must you stand firm and must you stay united, but you've got to strive together. Every one of the parts of the body has got to be at work. There are no unnecessary parts of the body. We have to strive together. What is your place of service? What corner of the cot are you carrying? Are you planting? Are you watering? Are you harvesting? Are you weeding? What, what are you doing? Everybody has a place in the body of Christ, and everybody has a part to play in the healthy functioning of the body. We all have to strive together. But you'll notice that he specifically says we're to strive together, what? For the faith of the gospel. For the faith of the gospel. Now, I'll just tell you that the faith of the gospel, gospel can mean one of three things. Don't you love it when I tell you that? It can mean one of three things. It may mean faith in the gospel, that you put your faith in the gospel and by which you are saved. You put your trust in the gospel, what Jesus has done for us. That's one understanding, the faith of the gospel. The second understanding of the faith of the gospel is the faith that is the gospel. That is the creed or the content, what makes up the gospel. You put your faith in that content, in that creed, or it can mean the faith that's generated by the gospel. When you hear the gospel, faith is born in your heart. But here's the thing. We don't have to press too hard today to figure out which of those three it is because the point here isn't to divide, those, divide up those three things. As a matter of fact, it may be all three of those things. All of them combined together. It may be all three of them combined together. The point of what Paul is saying here is that we're to strive together for the communication of the gospel and for conduct that is worthy of the gospel. Did you get it? We're to strive together for the communication of the gospel and for conduct that is worthy of the gospel. Someone has said it this way. When Christians focus on proclaiming the gospel and living by the truth of the gospel, they will be soulmates striving together with one soul. What, what are we supposed to be striving together for? For the faith of the gospel, to believe in the gospel, to believe the content, the content that is the faith, to see the gospel produce faith in the hearts of other people. Our task, striving together, is to bring the gospel message to others, to men and women, and then to live out that gospel message ourselves in a way that's, that demonstrates we are working together. You know what one of the greatest hindrances to the message of the gospel is? You have a church full of people and you have a handful that aren't even trying to live for Jesus. They aren't even making... They aren't even making an outward effort to obey the Lord and follow God. And what does the world do? The world looks in and says, oh yeah, that's what Christianity is. It's a bunch of hypocrites. But that's not what Paul has said. If you're going to be a good citizen, we all strive together. Remember in America when it used to be something like this, uh, ask not what this country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. And suddenly all that's sort of gotten turned around. 
and now it's all about what can my country do for me, and that's always a pathway to destruction. We have to come together. We have to cooperate with one another. We have to take up a corner of the cot. We have to sow, and we have to water. We have to weed, and we have to harvest together. Every member of the body doing its part to get the gospel out and to live the gospel before others. It's a man by the name of Herman Ostry. He lives in Bruno, Nebraska, and his barn was under 29 inches of water because of a creek that had risen So he decided that what he was going to do was just have an old-fashioned barn raising. This barn was estimated to weigh about 17,000 pounds. And they had to move it to a new foundation that was 143 feet away. So his son, whose name was Mike, devised a latticework of steel tubing. He nailed and bolted and welded it on the inside, the outside of the barn. He put on hundreds of handles to that steel tubing, and on the day it came to move it, there were 344 volunteers who showed up. After a practice attempt, those 344 volunteers picked up that 1,700-pound barn. They walked up a slight incline, supporting less, now hear it, less than 50 pounds apiece, and in just three minutes, the barn was on its new foundation. Do you get the point? Do you get the point? When we strive together as the church of God, we can do so much more. When we work together and everybody cooperates and everybody does their part, and that's what good citizenship is, whether it's in America or it's your heavenly citizenship, it's everybody putting their hands to the plow and doing their part. Worthy citizenship means standing fast, Worthy citizenship means staying united. Worthy citizenship means striving together. But fourthly, worthy citizenship means showing courage. It means showing courage. Notice as he goes on in verse 28, at the end of verse 27, striving together for the faith of the gospel and not in any way, in any way terrified by your adversaries. See the word terrified? It's an interesting Greek word. Again, it's one of those words that's only used here. And it refers to when a horse gets spooked, gets agitated, gets afraid, and throws its rider and runs away. It's not, only, it's not used anywhere else in the New Testament, but it's used in other Greek literature. Maybe you'll know the name Plutarch, maybe not. He was a Greek biographer and a Greek philosopher. He was a contemporary of the time that the Apostle Paul was living. And he uses that word. He specifically uses it on one occasion about a Roman soldier that died in battle because his horse got frightened. The horse got agitated. It threw him to the ground. And the end result was that he was killed. In other words, the Apostle Paul says when the enemy comes, wherever the enemy comes from, we are to stand there and we're to show courage and not be frightened or spooked off by those that are standing and opposing us and standing against us. We aren't to be frightened when we're threatened for our faith. Did you know that there's a sense There's a sense in which people see the reality of our faith when we refuse to compromise and be afraid in the face of their unparalleled pressure and threats. 
Notice what he says, verse, verse 28. And not in any way terrified. Don't be spooked off like a horse that gets scared. Not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them, that is your adversaries, a proof of perdition. You know what that means? It means when you stand firm and you refuse to give up the faith and you are willing to stand there with courage in the face of those who are pressuring you to change and you show courage in the midst of that difficult circumstance, it works judgment in the hearts of those who are watching. They can't figure it out. They can't quite understand. They can't quite make sense. How is it that a man or a woman could stand with this kind of courage and face these kinds of things? It's the Christians who give up and give in and who get, who get molded to the culture, to the citizenship of this world, rather than to the culture or the citizenship of heaven that are the ones that the world says, if that's all the church has, then I don't need what they have. I was reading an article about the suffering church. You and I know nothing about the suffering church. In America, we know nothing about the suffering church. But I was reading this article about the suffering church all over the world. I get a, I get a magazine on a regular base, basis about the martyrs of the faith. And in that article, it talks about 17 different degrees of opposition or persecution. And it goes from the lesser to the greater. Let me show you what they are. Let me read to you what they are. It begins with disapproval. It escalates to ridicule and then pressure to conform. And then fourthly, there's loss of educational opportunities. And then there's economic sanctions. And then there's shunning. Then there's alienation from community and there's loss of employment. Then there's loss of property or physical abuse. Number 11, there's mob violence and harassment by officials. Number 13, kidnapping. Number 14, forced labor. And then the three worst, imprisonment, physical torture, and murder or execution. Have you ever picked up the book, Fox's Book of Martyrs? Read the stories of saints who stood before those who, will pay, who, who opposed the message of the gospel, who stood there with courage and showed courage and were willing even to die if necessary? Are you willing to die for your faith? Or would you just be willing to go along with the culture wherever the culture leads you to go? Would you stand there in the face of the opposition? And would you stand there with a sense of confidence and a sense of courage? Or would you acquiesce and give up the very truths that distinguish us as Christians? The Christians of Acts faced persecution and endured in their faith. They were willing to go anywhere and do anything and suffer greatly for Jesus Christ their Lord. Today, you know what suffering is? Having to wear a mask to church. That's suffering for Jesus. Oh, get over it. Just, just get on with it. Get over it. That's no big deal, is it? When you talk about suffering, somebody who's opposing your faith, and you stand with boldness and with courage, and you say, I will not give up my faith no matter what the cost, no matter what the cost may be. Christians must not flee 
compromise, give in, back down, or be divided when they're faced with hostile opposition. We must stand there and show courage. That's what the citizens of heaven do. That's what the soldiers on the front line of battle do as citizens of the United States, isn't it? They go into battle with courage. And we go into battle with courage. Please understand, we're going to suffer. I don't know if it'll be this generation or the next generation, but before Jesus Christ comes, there will be suffering that comes to the church of the living God. Listen to how the apostle Peter wrote about it, what to do. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 to 17, he says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. Now listen to the words. And do not be afraid. It's a different word, but it's the same idea. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed, for it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Good citizens of heaven are those that show courage in the face of the opposition that is against them. In October of 2016, a man by the name of Andrew Brunson was taken under arrest in Turkey. Andrew Brunson is an American missionary He had gone to reach the people of Turkey. He had been there for 23 years, reaching the people of Turkey, pastored a small church in Turkey. But he was accused of being a part of an uprising or inciting an uprising against against President uh, Erdogan. And they took him under arrest. And for the next year and nine or ten months, He stayed under arrest without due process, without any means of being able to be released. In July of 2018, they finally were going to bring him before a tribunal, and they were going to try him, and he stood there in court. But on that that occasion, they continued the case for another two and a half or so months until they got to October of 2018. So for two years... He was in prison until our government put pressure on them, and they ultimately released him. For two years, he was in prison. During that July 18, 2018 appearance in court, there were those who were there to stand with him. There was an American pastor who was there who said that as he stood there before the court, before they continued the case, as he stood there before the court, he forgave those who had testified falsely against him. Brunson said, according to this pastor, my faith teaches me to forgive, so I forgive those who testified against me. That American pastor goes on to say, as usual, there was much spurious testimony against Andrew. His testimony was absolutely powerful. He presented the gospel with confidence and defended himself with boldness. And then his wife, Noreen, wrote about that experience. She said, the Lord was absolutely glorified. He explained why he was here. He gave the gospel. He publicly forgave all those who have come against him, forgiving as he has been forgiven. She continued, 
It is a privilege to suffer for the sake of Christ, he said. Blessed am I as I suffer for him. Blessed am I as I'm slandered. Blessed am I as I'm being lied about. Blessed am I as I'm in prison. Blessed am I as I share his suffering. And he stood there after more than a year and a half of unjust imprisonment, showing courage, showing bravery in the defense of the gospel doing exactly what the Scripture taught him to do, forgiving those who had wronged him and proclaiming the gospel even to those who wanted to convict him and send him away for what would have been the rest of his life. But he stood there showing courage. May I say to you that that's the kind of courage God's looking for in all of us when we face the enemies of God and mark it down. There are enemies of God is I think Lester Roloff used to say, this is not a playground where we live. This is a war zone. And there are enemies of the gospel, and they'll get in your face, and they'll shake their finger at you, and they'll threaten you, and they'll use mob violence. They may arrest you, and they may even kill you. But we stand and show confidence in the face of those enemies because we have confidence in our God. You say, Pastor, how in the world could you ever have that kind of confidence? Let me begin by saying, first of all, it's something that God works in your heart. It's a grace that God works in your heart. You don't need it right now, so you don't have it. But when you need it, God will work it. You understand what I'm saying? There are a lot of things in life we say, how did you deal with that? How did you get through with that? And they say, well, the grace of God helped me. Well, I've never felt the grace of God like that. Well, Well, you weren't in their circumstances. You weren't in their situation. And in those moments, God worked the grace in their hearts that they did not have before that moment. And when you stand at a moment when you have to look the enemy in the eye and show courage, God will work a grace in your heart that gives you a boldness that you never had on your own. But can I tell you, that kind of courage comes as well when you know the outcome of the battle. (laughs) I've already read the last book of the Bible, and I know who wins. And I know, as the Apostle Paul said earlier in this chapter, if I live, I'm going to serve the Lord. If I die, well, that's a gain. I'm in a win-win situation. I know the outcome. I've been desperate through this pandemic to find some sports to watch. (laughs) Early on, early on, I wanted to find some golf to watch. So I sat down one Saturday, and I turned it on, and lo and behold, there was a golf tournament on. I was so pleased. I couldn't believe it. How did they get away with having all those people on the, on, you know, all the, all the fans on, on, on the sides of the fairways and the, and the golfers? And how, how did they get away with that? And I watched for, oh, 15 or 20 minutes, and then it struck me. It was a replay from last year. And I already knew who the winner was going to be. You know, there's just something about sports. When you take the suspense out of it, it's not that much fun anymore. It's not that much fun. If you know who's going to win the football game, it's not so much fun to go watch the game on TV as a rerun. If you know who's going to, run the, who's going to win the race, you, you don't really care that much about watching. Yesterday, I watched the Belmont Stakes. I think 2015, when American Pharaoh won the Triple Crown. And I love to watch horses run. 
They are beautifully, incredibly beautiful and strong animals. They're unbelievable. But it wasn't all that exciting because I knew he was going to win and he was going to get the triple crown. Right? How do you have that kind of courage? In that moment when you're standing in the face of your enemy and your enemy standing in your face and all of those different means of persecution are turned up against you and even your life is threatened, God works the courage within you as it was worked in the Apostle Paul where you can say, to, for, for to me, for to me to live, it's Christ. And to die, that ain't so bad either. It's gain. And when you know the outcome, God works a courage within your heart that you can't have any other way. Listen, dear friends, we need to be good citizens of heaven. Amen? We need to be good citizens of heaven. We need to transfer our loyalties from this world to the world that is to come. From the citizenship we have in this society to the citizenship we're going to have in heaven forever, we need to make sure we fly the flag clearly. We might need to get some of the symbols of the world off the back of our SUVs and make sure that what everybody sees is that I'm a good citizen of heaven, that I'm living in a way that pleases the Lord. Look at verse 29. He says, for to you it's been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. He says, Philippians, you're facing a lot of the same things that I've been facing. It's going to get worse. It's not going to get better. And I expect you to conduct yourselves not as just good citizens of Rome. I expect you to conduct yourselves as good citizens of heaven. You are a citizen of heaven. And that good citizenship is characterized by standing fast, by staying united, by striving together, and by showing courage. Be a good citizen of heaven. Let me ask you a question. When somebody pulls up behind your life and they're looking at all the tags on the back, does it clearly say, my loyalties lie with the Lord? Or does it say, my loyalties lie somewhere else? Does it say, I'm a citizen of heaven? Or does it say, I'm still holding on to the world in which I live? God's calling people to follow him. And he's calling people of courage to follow him and be his disciples.